Welcome to Cancer Conversations, a podcast series from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode from October 2015, Dr. Judy Garber discusses the latest research around genetics and how it is improving treatments for breast, ovarian, and other women's cancers. Dr. Garber is the director of Dana-Farber's Center for Cancer Genetics and Prevention and one of the leaders of the Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers at Dana-Farber. Melanie Graham from Dana-Farber's Communications Department joins her for the conversation. Uh, We'll be speaking today with Dr. Judy Garber. Uh, She's the director of the Center for Cancer Genetics and Prevention here at Dana-Farber, and she's also one of the leaders in our Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers. All right, Dr. Garber, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So I just want to get started with kind of a basic question about genetics and genetic testing. In general, um, can you just tell us when somebody should seek out genetic testing for cancer risk? Well, maybe we should talk about when someone should seek out genetic information because not every visit requires genetic testing. People should inquire often if they themselves have a new cancer diagnosis and they're wondering why did this happen. For some forms of cancer, genetic information can affect decisions about treatment options. So that might be a time. Certainly people who have learned they have a family history, a sister, a mother, a father, or a relative is diagnosed, and they're wondering about genetics. In that circumstance, often they can get information that would help them and their family figure out the most appropriate, the most effective, the most informative way to figure out how genetics might influence their risk. And sometimes there are people who just you know, they just have always wondered about their risk of cancer, usually because of family history, and at some point they just decide they're ready to know. Um, so we're going to focus mostly on women's cancers today. Mm-hmm. Um, it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but we'll talk a little bit about um, other women's cancers as well. Sure. Um, so a lot of the focus in women's cancers um, right now is around the BRCA or the BRCA mm-hmm. uh, gene mutations. Um, But are there other uh, important genes out there that may influence, or gene mutations that may influence women's cancers that um, people should know about? Well, the BRCA genes have been around for 20 years, and they certainly are the most frequently altered genes that confer risk of breast cancer. But there are more genes all the time, it feels like, now. So we've known for a while that there are another group of genes we call high penetrance or high risk genes where having a mutation would give a woman quite an increased risk of breast cancer. But all of those genes are also linked to other genes, not ovarian cancer like BRCA1 and 2, but often to stomach cancer or other gastrointestinal cancers or completely different cancers. And now there are a whole list of genes that confer what we would say is moderate risk of breast cancer, so not 10 times the risk of the population, but still enough increased risk that it might change, that knowing that you had a mutation in one of those genes would change how you should be cared for, monitored more closely, for example. So whereas in the past, people would get tested for only BRCA1 or BRCA2 or both, now it's possible to have what are called panel tests, where you can look at all the genes that are related to breast cancer or to ovarian cancer or kidney cancer or colon cancer or whichever cancer. So you talk about these um, these panel tests. Uh, has technology improved in other ways to kind of give more information or more data for people who are undergoing genetic testing? 
Well, that probably is the most difficult question. So the technology of being able to look at a large number of genes all at once instead of one gene at a time, that has certainly revolutionized care and made it possible to look at a panel of genes and to have it cost as much or less than it used to to look at one or two genes. So the technology there has made a big difference. But the technology can't solve the problem of the fact that we don't know as much about those genes. Not as many people have been tested for those genes. Not, those genes don't give as much risk, so we often will have people who, who, don't, who haven't had cancer as part of this, and it's going to take still more work for us to know as much about those genes as we do about BRCA1 and 2. So we get a lot of questions from um, people who have previously been genetic, mm -hmm. that have been tested, um, and maybe results came back negative, um, and they're wondering if they should do it again, if technology has developed sure. enough that they should do it again. So I don't mean to be evasive, but, um, but it depends on several factors. So if someone was tested, say, before 2007, so that's pretty long ago now, eight years ago, the technology has really changed. And if you had enough family history that you were worried then, it's certainly worth asking now, would I learn more from the newer tests? Um, for people who were tested because there was a mutation in the family, it was known to be in BRCA1 or 2, and they were negative, that is a definitive negative test. You know what the mutation was. You don't have it. There's no reason to go looking again. That's the answer, and so you don't need to repeat that. But for people where there was no answer, uh, certainly the question is, would I learn more from the newer tests? And that is a time to ask. Um, how long does it take, typically, to get results back from a test like this? Does it vary depending on where you go? Or? So these tests are done in commercial laboratories. So it doesn't really matter where you go to get your blood drawn or your saliva collected. They're going to be sent out to different labs. So it depends on what you're looking for. If you're doing single genes or looking for a specific mutation, that usually takes about two weeks. If you do a panel test, it usually takes about a month. And that's pretty standard. And then the results come back to the ordering clinician, and then you have to get them back from them. So people have different ways of setting that up. I saw in one of the questions someone said she'd been waiting six months, mm -hmm. and I think the results should have been back by now. Um, so she should call the doctor's office and say, I like my results. Yeah. Um, so you may have touched on this a little bit before when you were talking about different risks, but um, is it common for uh, women who have the BRCA gene, specifically we had a, somebody ask about BRCA1, mm -hmm. um, to be at risk for other cancers in addition to um, ovarian and breast cancer? So yes, the BR BRCA1 not so much, but BRCA2 has more risk of melanoma, the skin cancer, and some risk also of pancreatic cancer, particularly in families where there's been a pancreatic cancer and a mutation. So these are much lower risks, much, much lower risks than the risks of breast and ovarian cancer, but they are connected. And there are some other tumors listed as well. And for these newer genes, I'd say we don't even know yet exactly what the spectrum of cancers is. You know, BRCA1 and 2 and these other genes are mostly involved in fixing errors in the DNA. We call them DNA repair genes. And it never made sense to think that a gene that was so important to how a cell did its very basic job 
of copying all of its genes and chromosomes exactly correctly every time it divides. A gene that's that important to that process, how could it only predispose to one or two cancers? So it does make sense that there's more risk. Okay. Is there any new um, research in regards to BRCA1 and 2 mutations and impact on risk? We had somebody who just wrote in asking if scientists are getting closer to understanding varying levels of risk between the two different genes. So there has been, just in the last year, a paper from Tim Rebick, who's now at Dana-Farber and his group, looking at um, the question of whether your specific mutation could give you specific risks. So does it matter if your mutation's at the very beginning of this very large gene or at the end or in the middle or in a very particular functional place? And it looks like there's some variation from that. So we haven't yet learned enough to use that in clinical counseling, but we're getting closer. And the other things are um, modifier genes. So you know, this is only one gene out of all your 20,000 genes, and there are other genes that are important for things like metabolizing hormones or metabolizing carcinogens, and it's clear that there are patterns of these genes that can also affect risk. So I would say we are not quite there, but within the next few years, I would expect that we'll be able to help narrow the numbers for people so they won't, you know, we now counsel with big ranges, and it would be easier to know so you could plan what you should do. It also would help to explain why in the same family with the same mutation, you can have a woman with breast cancer in her 20s and her grandmother maybe with no breast cancer at all. Mm. So on the topic of um, families with risk, um, we had quite a few people write in about um, their specific family risk, whether it was a grandmother or an aunt or a mother or something like that. Um, this particular uh, person wrote in asking, uh, saying that her maternal grandmother, uh, her mother, and her have all had breast cancer, but they've all tested negative for the BRCA mutation, um, but she has a daughter. And so she's wondering, um, you know, when, if and when her daughter should get tested, and if she does undergo testing, what age? And the age question has come in quite a bit from people asking about when the right. kid should be tested. So. I would say that for a family like that, and there are many of them who expected to have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation but did not, those are exactly the families where these panel tests could be useful. But the people to test, when possible, are people who've had the cancer because they are the ones most likely to have a mutation. If you find a mutation in this woman or her mother or her aunt, then you would know exactly where to test her daughter to see if she shares the mutation or not. If you haven't found anything in the family so far, then testing the daughter is not going to be useful. She would have not inherited something you can't find. The question of when to test even people who have a known mutation in the family, when do we recommend testing their children? And for BRCA1 and 2, we've generally recommended that people consider being tested around age 25. And that's because at 25, we start monitoring them, screening them for early breast cancer. Some people can't wait till 25. They need to know younger. But for most people, there's nothing to be done before then. So unless they absolutely have to know, we wouldn't start until we're ready to screen. Some people don't want to know even at 25, and we still think they should be screened. And that's possible, too. Um, 
So we had uh, quite a few questions um, come in also from people who have te been tested and, and results have come back negative for BRCA. Um, but they're wondering um, if there are other genes that, specific genes that we know of that would increase risk for breast cancer. Um, so if they were to do one of those panel tests um, and if there was something specific that came back, what would they want to look for that may increase breast cancer? Well, <clears throat> I think, you know, I can give you some lists of genes that are in the panels, um, but it's pretty hard to, to answer a general question like that. So. Yes, among the other genes in the panels, if a positive result were found, then for some of them we know quite a bit about what else to look for, how to be monitored. For many of them, we're still learning. And I would say this is like, like the early days of BRCA1 and 2, 20 years ago, when we didn't know as much as we know today and where our patients and the research community had to work together to figure this out. And we, today, we can really accelerate that process because we can collect information from large numbers of people being tested much more often than the way we did before. But we really still have to ask the patients to be partners in the research so we generate the very information they want as quickly as possible for them and their families. And that's led to projects like PROMPT, where people who are not tested in academic centers can collect, contribute their information, so there'll be that information much faster. I, I know we would like to have it all already, but we don't. Yeah. Um, so we just had one a question about this come in, and we did get a, quite a few um, earlier uh, this month about um, insurance and genetic testing, and yeah. whether it's something that would be covered, and if not, other other options for paying for it, or you know, what are the options out there? Yeah, so uh, most insurance does cover genetic testing, and there is now the GINA law that was passed in the, about in the last decade that protects us from discrimination based on genetic information, at least as far as health insurance. So you can't apply for health insurance and have them use your genetic information to discriminate either failure to cover or make your test your coverage more expensive. But of course now there's Obamacare and other ways for people to have health care. Uh, they're not at risk in the same way. The law does not protect against discrimination for life insurance and disability insurance, long-term care insurance. So if those are still issues, we always encourage people to get those in place before they have testing. Um, in terms of cost, the costs have come way down. So it used to cost $4,000 for BRCA1 and 2. Now it can be as much as $4,000 for the whole panel. But the patients themselves rarely see cost greater than $100 or $200. And you know, it's the Wild West out there now. There are some laboratories that are doing testing and charging only $100 or $200 without insurance intervention. So for those places where they don't want to deal with insurance, but they're willing for you to be tested, um, the costs are, have come down a huge amount. So it's not free, but it is much less than before. Great. Um, so now getting into, um, you know, after testing is done, and, mm -hmm. and we had a few people write in asking about um, personalized medicine, precision medicine, something they've been hearing a lot in the news lately. Um, so uh, this person asked, can you talk a bit about how um, personalized medicine is being used in women's cancers, um, and is it, a, is it a common option for patients? Do most patients have access to this? And um, is it successful? 
Well, it's a very broad question, but <laughs> it's a good question. So personalized medicine really means trying to use the features of the tumor, mostly the tumor, but also your other genes, your own genes like BRCA1 and 2, to try to target therapy against the specific tumor instead of the general tumor, all breast cancers, all ovarian cancers. Um, and I would say that precision medicine is making huge progress. Most, for many tumors, there is not a lot of tumor typing at diagnosis. Most of the tumor precision typing is done in tumors that have recurred or metastatic tumors because many of the drugs that target are still experimental or investigational. And so those are used only if the tumor comes back and not at diagnosis if cure is the option. In breast cancer, it's always been a little bit different. So we've been doing, we like to say, precision medicine for a long time. We type all tumors for estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, HER2. Those are all molecular features of the tumor, and we target those with existing approved therapies. But if the tumors recur after those treatments, then we certainly do type them and target them. Is this available to all patients everywhere? Well, technically it is. You can send your tumor to a commercial laboratory and they will type it. Um, and most practices these days will try very hard to make that technology available so it can make a difference. Um, so we did get a couple of questions just in terms of prevention. Mm -hmm. um, so um, this one um, woman wrote in asking um, about prevention once she knows that she has some gene mutations. So mm -hmm. um, this woman specifically doesn't have BRCA. She has other gene mutations like BRAF. Um, but just in general, if you find out you have a, a gene mutation, BRCA or otherwise, um, what's something that you can do to prevent um, cancer from occurring, whether it's breast or ovarian, whether it's some steps you can take? So I think one thing that we all have to be particularly clear about is the difference between the genes you were born with and the genes in the tumor. So BRAF, for example, is a common mutation mm -hmm. in right. tumors, not necessarily in the blood. Right. And the blood side of all this is mostly mm -hmm. about the risk of developing cancer. Once the tumor has mutations, then it's a treatment issue. So prevention remains a huge challenge. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately or fortunately, it, we can very effectively prevent breast and ovarian cancers in women with mutations by doing surgical removal of their healthy tissue, prophylactic surgeries, the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, and the breasts in particular. Um, you know, this is not what we want to be doing, but it, at least it works. And at least you can show that you can really reduce mortality from these cancers, which is a big deal if you're in a family where this gene has really, you know, rampaged through and many women have suffered and died, to know that you don't have to follow the same fate is a big thing. But we continue to look for strategies that at least will delay tumor as well as hopefully prevent tumor. So there are exercise studies, there are medication studies like tamoxifen, which many people don't want to take because of side effects, but where that might work. There are a number of new trials with different agents. Um, but not everyone wants medication. There is a vaccine trial coming that I think we're all very excited about, but it's very early days of that, I would say. There's metformin, which is a medication people take for prediabetes that's being looked at to reduce risk. 
And of course, there are efforts to detect things as early as possible. So at least though it's treatment, it's to give you the best possible chance before there's even a tumor. And those studies are very exciting. They're looking at things like trying to detect in the D DNA from tumors just in the bloodstream without necessarily having a mass somewhere. I mean, some of that is sound science fiction, but uh, things have moved so fast you have to be hopeful. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you mentioned, you might have mentioned this, but you talk a lot about um, Angelina Jolie and her decisions to have surgery mm -hmm. um, to prevent. So that's not necessarily, doesn't have to be the option for every woman, correct? Well, for people with BRCA1 and 2 mutations, the main problem we have is that we have no decent early detection for ovary. It is a huge problem. It is being studied so intensely, but it's just incredibly hard to do. And because we have no good early detection and because treating advanced ovarian cancer is not always successful, then removing the ovaries and fallopian tubes really is the option for women. It works. The problem is it causes early menopause and mm -hmm. that's got its own issues. Um, there's interest in whether you could reduce risk substantially by taking the fallopian tubes and not the ovaries, but that is absolutely a research question at the moment. So if anyone does that, it should be part of a clinical trial where we learn at least, can this work? Because it would be great if it works, but you can't assume that it will work. Okay, um, okay this person wrote in, um, I'm a, I'm a 38-year-old woman, I have BRCA1 um, positive, and she's currently being treated for breast cancer. Um, since she's already had breast cancer, mm -hmm. does this change her lifetime risk for ovarian cancer, or is her risk the same as anybody who would be BRCA1 positive and has never had breast cancer? So that's a very interesting question, and there are some data about that. In fact, temporarily there's a little bit of an increase. Over time, there is a decrease in ovarian cancer risk. Um, sometimes these days we think that it's that the decrease is related to the fact that we can now use platinum, a drug that's always used as part of ovarian cancer treatment in the treatment of some breast cancers. So here you're getting treated for breast cancer, but the drug goes everywhere. So maybe it also goes to the ovaries and helps to lower that risk. Unfortunately, it's not one cancer to a customer, and for people who have mutations in these genes, there is still some increased risk of the other tumors as well. Finally, I think we'd just like to um, wrap up a little bit here with a um, kind of a general question just asking about research. We had a few people write in asking about the latest research and kind of what's going on with genetic testing, specifically with women's cancers. Um, is there anything new on the horizon that they're looking into? Anything um, that you'd like to share? Well. <laughs> there are a lot, there's always a lot going on. So uh, let's leave aside for this discussion the new forms of treatment for cancers that develop in women who are known to have an increased risk, which I think has been one of the most exciting and unexpected benefits that the tumors occurring in someone with a hereditary risk are different biologically and can be treated effectively with drugs we just haven't used in breast cancer before. So that's exciting. On the genetic side, more and more genes are being found, so fewer and fewer families, hopefully, will have to wonder, was there something genetic? And could I have known about that and use that information to avoid getting cancer myself or for my children? So I think there's more of that. The access to genetic testing is changing. 
there have been calls for making genetic information widely available in the population, even to people who have had no family history. Personally, I think we're a little bit away from that. Uh, not necessarily in the Jewish population, for example, where there's known to be a much increased prevalence of mutations and where there's been a lot of work to show that this is safe. But in the general population, I don't think we're ready to test absolutely everyone. The vast majority of people will not have risk. But there is still work going on to make this information more accessible and please to teach us better ways to take care of our patients and help to prevent the cancers that they have so much risk for. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing all the info today, Dr. Graber. I really appreciate it. Um, I think our viewers appreciate it as well. Have a great day. This has been Dana-Farber's Cancer Conversations, featuring Dr. Judy Garber of Dana-Farber's Center for Cancer Genetics and Prevention. To download more episodes and learn about other cancer podcast series, visit DanaFarber.org slash podcasts.